my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is for you. I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 522. Welcome in. It is Monday morning. It is uh, 6.18 in the morning. I've been up all night watching football. I went to the gym. I haven't eaten yet this morning, but I'm awake. And I'm doing really great. I watch, man, I, I had a great time watching football this week. It's Monday. I'm excited. Um, I've got a habit I can't break. And we'll talk about this later down the road when I get to Washington and their quarterback, Taylor Heineke. Uh, we're going to talk all about NFL Week 11 today. Let's jump in. During NFL Week 11, the Patriots beat the Jets on Sunday 10-3. to um, It was kind of an ugly game, a defensive battle. I thought both defenses played very well. It's kind of an unfortunate game because neither defense really deserved to win, but neither offense really, sorry, neither defense deserved to lose, excuse me, but neither offense deserved to win. Um, The Patriots missed two field goals. Neither offense scored a touchdown, had a crazy ending. I actually watched the very end of this game live. I turned it on. I usually watch games after the fact, but I'm like, I wonder what's going to happen at the end of this game. Uh, before I rewind to watch the whole thing. And I was, I started in the fourth quarter. It was pretty boring, pretty boring. Not a lot going on. And then the Jets were backed up deep in their own territory. It was fourth and three with 26 seconds left. They're punting the ball away. And I'm like, okay, sweet. I get to watch overtime. It's going to be awesome. And I want to give a shout out to Patriots rookie punt returner, Marcus Jones. I believe he went to Houston. He was a former Cougar. He returned the punt 84 yards for the game-winning walk-off touchdown. Technically, uh, he returned it with five seconds left, and then there was a kickoff that the Jets returned and went nowhere. But it was a crazy ending, like a walk-off punt return for a touchdown. The only touchdown in the game. And I I just want to focus. It was a, a bizarre way to win, a bizarre way for the game to end. I guess a shout-out to the Patriots special teams. What a good way for them to win. But my focus I, I want to do here is I want to focus all my attention on the Jets quarterback, Zach Wilson. A couple weeks ago, they played the Patriots. He had a really bad game, three interceptions, and a lot of costly decisions that allowed the Patriots to win. And in this game, Zach Wilson didn't make, well, he actually did, but there weren't any terrible interceptions at minimum, right? But he also didn't play very well. And I, I got to say, I feel bad for the Jets' defense because they held the Patriots to three points on offense. They sacked the Patriots quarterback, Mac Jones, six times in this football game. The Jets' defense did not deserve to lose this football game, but they didn't get any run support. It's like when a pitcher has a great game pitching in baseball and the team gets, you know, you like, I only gave up three hits. It's like, well, our team got no hit, right? No run support for this pitcher. The defense of the Jets played outstanding, and the bottom line is that the Jets quarterback, Zach Wilson, wasn't good enough. He was 9 for 22 passing against the Patriots for 77 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions, although he should have had one. There was a throw before halftime that was a bad decision. Ball went high, went right into Devin McCourty's hands. Uh, the Patriots' safety, he dropped it. Should have been a you know an interception. That would have been, think about this stat line. If the Jets lose 10 to 3, and instead of 9 for 22, 77 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. If Imagine today if it was 9 for 22, 77 yards, no touchdowns, and an interception. Would have been awful. Like, it, it was awful, and that really should have been a pick. Like, Zach Wilson did not have a good day. And it's disappointing. I want to continue to preach patience. Like, I, I, I always say, you raise your expectations right around the middle of year three for a young quarterback. If by the end of year three, it's not working, you got to move on. Zach Wilson is halfway through year two. It's been good sometimes. It's been really bad sometimes. I'm going to wait and be patient for Zach Wilson. But today, it's not easy to be patient for Zach Wilson. It doesn't look good. And I am worried now that a year from today, when I'm like, hey, we're halfway through year three for Zach Wilson. Now you got to start raising your expectations. I'm afraid he's not going to answer the call. Zach Wilson has tons of talent. He physically has it. And he, man, he makes some throws. He had a throw on, on third down. Didn't go for a first down. It went for like eight yards on third and 10. But he had a throw over the middle to a t- his tight end where he like lowers his shoulder, throws it like sidearm under defender and a beautiful angle. Like he makes good throws. He's got a lot of talent. 
but the decision making isn't good. The offense doesn't look good at all. And I, you know, it's, I just, you have to acknowledge this, I think, in this loss is that the defense played great. The Jets have a lot of young talent. Right now, the thing holding them back is their young quarterback. I, I'm not ready to bail on the kid yet. Again, I, I've said it many times. You, you got to be patient with young quarterbacks. But I have seen Jets fans now say, maybe we should have just held on to Sam Darnold. And that is a terrifying, concerning thought. That it's, it's so unclear whether Zach Wilson is going to work out or not that people are second-guessing even drafting him. It's not good. And I, I want to just also back up and look at the AFC East in general, this division, because the Patriots and Jets are both 6-4. and four. Miami and Buffalo are both 7-3. and three. It's a really tough competitive division. And to have all four teams above 500, you know, two games or more above 500 even, says a lot. And it's a really competitive division. The Dolphins look like a Super Bowl contender. The Bills are a Super Bowl contender. The Patriots are still the Patriots with Bill Belichick. The Jets could be pretty dang good and still be fourth in their division. You cannot afford to have a quarterback playing badly right now. You you got to figure it out. Hopefully, Zach Wilson becomes the guy. I'm going to wait. I'm going to be patient. But right now, I'm not feeling real confident in Zach Wilson. And I don't like that fact. By the way, I, I just feel bad for Jets fans because not only has it been just a tumultuous couple of years for Jets fans. Adam Gay, Sam Darnold, that didn't work. Zach Wilson, coaches fired and bad quarterback played. A lot of ugly stuff has happened in the Jets fan base. It's been that way for a long time, but particularly recently it's been bad. Here's an example of how bad it's been. The Patriots have beat the Jets 14 games in a row. 14 games in a row. The Patriots have beat the Jets and Oh, man. I, I know there's a different level of hatred out east. I, I've grown, I grew up on the West Coast, and um, the West Coast isn't that competitive about football. The you know middle of the country, the Midwest, they talk smack, but it's friendly. And on the East Coast is my favorite type of football fan, where there's passion. There's anger and raw emotion. And in the South, in college football, there's intensity. And in the east side of the country, in New York, in Philadelphia, in Washington, I would even throw Dallas in there, even though they're really more south than east, but they're considered east. That's, that part of our country has a deep passion and love for football. I cannot imagine the passionate hatred Jets fans must have for the New England Patriots. Not only are the Patriots a team that if you, I don't think they are cheaters, but if you want to, if you want to believe that, you could very easily point your finger and just call them cheaters. They won Super Bowls for years, and now they beat the Jets 14 games in a row. Jets fans, I am so sorry. Um, I know it's painful. I can't even imagine because I don't have a favorite team. But I, I guess I can't imagine. I can imagine you are desperately, desperately wanting to beat the Patriots at some point coming soon. And... Um, like, of all the teams, if Miami was beating you, if the Bills were beating you, it would hurt, but it wouldn't hurt as bad. I would imagine the Patriots being who they are hurts even worse. And so, Jets fans, I just want to say, I'm so sorry you lost. I'm sorry that your quarterback looked terrible and uh, your defense played a game that was worthy of winning, and they lost. And that's a really weird, awful situation. Now, on to another city I love. I, I absolutely... If I had to pick one city in America to do local sports radio, it probably would be New York, right? It's just, it's, it's cool. There's so much passion. There's a lot of sports teams to talk about. But my number two team and my number two city I would want to go talk about is Philadelphia. Philadelphia's got passion. It's fun. It's awesome. And the Philadelphia Eagles, the Eagles just beat Indy 17 to 16 it was a massive win for Philly. Uh, they are now 9-1. and one. I really think the defining storyline from this game is that they had a really good fourth quarter comeback. Philly was down 13-3 to in the fourth quarter. Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts led them back. He had two fourth quarter touchdowns, including a great game-winning drive. Philly got the ball on their own 25-yard line with four minutes and 37 seconds left. Jalen Hurts put together a 75-yard Touchdown drive to win the game. I just 
man, round of applause for Jalen Hurts. He's come so far as a quarterback, and every time people doubt him, it seems like he finds a way to ring the bell and, and answer the call. And I love that. You know, last week they lost, and people were saying, I don't know about this. Maybe Jalen Hurts, you know, they're going to have a high draft pick. Maybe they should draft a quarterback. I'm not saying that made any sense, but I heard those conversations happening out there in the internet world. And in this game, Jalen Hurts was 18 for 25 passing, 190 yards, one touchdown pass. He also ran 16 times for 86 yards and another touchdown. Um, He had a fumble on the first play of the second half that handed Indy a field goal. Other than that one mistake, that fumble, he had a near perfect game. And Jalen Hurts was clutch in the end. And that's another criticism people have kind of volleyed his way. People have said, well, the Eagles are blowing teams out. They haven't played in a lot of close games, and you know, last, you know, when they when they lost their game the other day, people, you know, they're like, "Well, Jalen Hurts maybe didn't handle the close game very well." No, no, no. We've seen Jalen Hurts totally fine in a big moment. Had a game-winning drive here. Had two fourth-quarter touchdowns. Led a fourth-quarter comeback. I love it. I've got no concerns about Jalen Hurts, and uh, I, I just maintain Philly is the most concrete Super Bowl contender right now. I'm not saying they're going to win, but I, you know, Kansas City and Buffalo look like the two teams that I feel the most strong about probably representing their conference in the NFC or AFC title game. Now, we got to talk about the Colts because Indy, uh, it was their second game with their interim head coach, Jeff Saturday. Jeff Saturday has now won one game and also lost a game. The Colts in general are four, six, and one on the year. Four wins, six losses, and a tie. And... I want to actually give credit to Jeff Saturday here because I think so far, two games in, he's done a really solid job. He put the team in a good position to win. There was some bad luck in the fourth quarter. The Colts missed a field goal. Their star running back, Jonathan Taylor, fumbled. But that's not Jeff Saturday's fault. And the team is ready to play. The game plan was good. Players are motivated. Um, I, I think the details that were lacking early on in the year weren't terrible. And I I just think that the game was closer than I expected. That was surprising to me. And it would actually suggest that, you know, Jeff Saturday might be a legit coach. We'll see how the year goes on. But I think that's the fun of the Colts for the rest of the year now is just kind of evaluating how does Jeff Saturday do as a head coach? He's never been a coach before, but he's a longtime NFL player. He knows the league very well. By the end of the year, we'll have an answer. Is Jeff Saturday going to be the long-term coach in Indy or not? But so far, it's actually looking pretty good. You won your first game. You were very competitive against the number one team in the NFC in your second game. You lost on the very end. Um, I, I think you can swallow this loss if you're a Colts fan and say, hey, our team is competitive. It's interesting. And that would make me happy if I was a Colts fans, uh, Colts fans, if I was a Colts fan sitting at home today. By the way, it's worth mentioning. Um, Eagles head coach Nick Sirianni did beat his former team on Sunday. He used to coach under Frank Reich. He was the Colts offensive coordinator um, from 2018 to 2020. Remember, Frank Reich got fired a few weeks ago. It was a very emotional win for Nick Sirianni because I think, I don't know if it makes logical sense entirely, but I think he felt like he was in some way um, winning for Frank Reich, like defending the honor of the coach he used to work under. Frank Reich got fired, and so I think it felt really good to beat the Colts who fired his good buddy Frank Reich. And, I would not be shocked at all to see Frank Reich and Nick Sirianni work together at some point in the future. I don't know how it works out. I don't know that it even makes sense because Frank Reich is probably an offensive coordinator. The Eagles don't exactly need that. But certainly I would imagine if Frank Reich ever needed a job in the NFL, Nick Sirianni would absolutely, absolutely extend him an offer and... uh, kind of heartwarming, actually, to see the relationship and the clear care that Nick Sirianni has for his former head coach and mentor, Frank Reich. How about the surprise of the weekend? Does anyone know what game to me was the surprise of the weekend? I was geeked up for this game. I'm like, it's going to be awesome. Get your popcorn ready. It's going to be really fun. The game that I was hoping would be awesome was the Dallas Cowboys uh, against the Minnesota Vikings. And instead of being a fun Get your popcorn ready. Exciting, great game. It was a game that was actually still fun to watch because one team is killing it and just dominating. Uh, But unfortunately, it was not a competitive game at all because the Dallas Cowboys dominated the Minnesota Vikings and Dallas won 40 
to three. They were up halfway through the third quarter, 37 to three. Like they slowed down in the second half. Uh, but on both sides of the ball, Dallas was absolutely dominant. And I would say this was a very, very impressive win. The Cowboys ran for over 150 yards. Uh, shout out to Cowboys quarterback Dak Prescott. He basically played a perfect game. He was 22 for 25 passing, 276 yards, two touchdown passes. This game, in my opinion, showed how dangerous the Dallas Cowboys can be. They run the ball really well. When Dak Prescott is playing well, the best of Dak Prescott is terrifyingly good. I don't know that he's consistently that good. And I I have an open mind because he can change my mind. You know, he's been hurt. Maybe it's taken a while to get back from injury. Dak is maybe fully healthy. I don't know. But what we saw from Dak on Sunday was absolutely incredible. And if he did that every week, if Dak played the way he did on Sunday every week, I would say that's a Super Bowl team. I just haven't seen that consistently week to week. But really what I think is most scary about the Dallas Cowboys and what they really flexed their muscles and showed on Sunday was, you know, the Cowboys defensive line can take over games. They sacked Vikings quarterback Kirk Cousins seven times on Sunday. Basically, the Cowboys defensive line in front seven ruined the entire Vikings offensive plan. And it's also not the first time I've seen Dallas do that this year. It reminded me of their game week three at New York against the Giants where they sacked Daniel Jones five times and just didn't matter what Daniel Jones was doing. Nothing was right. Nothing was possible because everything they tried didn't work because the defensive line was getting so much pressure and was so dominant. And it makes me wonder, watching Dallas absolutely obliterate Minnesota, it's not just that they did it. It's the way they did it with their defensive line leading the way. A really good defensive line grabs my attention and really, really scares me. Because a really good defensive line, we have seen historically, if your defensive line is getting pressure on a quarterback with a four-man rush, meaning we can play coverage, we don't need to do anything special and blitz, we're just beating offensive linemen in one-on-one matchups. If you can win and get pressure with a four-man rush, that's a team that can absolutely get to and maybe even win a Super Bowl. We saw the Giants beat the Patriots, the 18-0 incredible New England Patriots. They fell. You know, David got David beat Goliath with Michael Strahan and that really good Giants defensive line taking down the Patriots. We saw the 49ers a couple of years ago go to the Super Bowl with Jimmy Garoppolo kind of pulling Jimmy Garoppolo along with a really good defensive team. Robert Sala was their defensive coordinator. There, you know, I think of Nick Bosa leading the way. They had a really great defensive line. They lost to Kansas City, but that defensive line was incredible and almost did win them the game. If Jimmy Garoppolo completes a really great pass downfield at the end, the 49ers win that Super Bowl rather than lose. And that's the power of a defensive line. Also, Tampa. When Tom Brady won a Super Bowl his first year in Tampa, their defensive line was absolutely incredible. So a scary good defensive line can take over games, and Dallas has that. So I just go back to this. I want to repeat it one more time. If you are capable of getting pressure without blitzing, without committing extra defenders to get after the quarterback, you just have, it's a four-man rush, you're beating offensive linemen and winning one-on-one matchups, that is a terrifying thought. And, you know, I, I was pretty cut and dry the other day. I said, look, Mike McCarthy, Dak Prescott, Jerry Jones, This leadership structure cannot win a Super Bowl in Dallas. I'll tell you what. I will be proven wrong if Dak Prescott plays the way he did on Sunday week to week. You know, he was, again, 22 for 25 passing, no interceptions, two touchdowns, like 200-something yards passing, really clean, really efficient, really accurate, played very well. If he does that every week and this defensive line can consistently get pressure the way they have recently— That's a dominating force. The problem is, and I think it goes back to the coach in Dallas, Mike McCarthy, the product that Dallas puts on the field week to week isn't consistent enough. But what we saw on Sunday, like I I called my shot the other day. I said, this this team is not going to win a Super Bowl the way it is now. Jerry Jones, Mike McCarthy, Dak Prescott, this group isn't going to work. But if they keep getting pressure with that defensive line, and Dak plays really well, I will be proven wrong. And I kind of hope I'm wrong. I think 
Dallas winning a Super Bowl would be incredible for the NFL. It's been so long since they've been good. Their fan base is so big. There's so much passion. I acknowledge that the league I love, the NFL, would be even better if the Cowboys won a Super Bowl. I don't think they can for reasons I've said before. But this was a game watching. I I, I watched Dallas dominate Minnesota, and I thought to myself, man, people are going to clip that out later. (laughs) People are going to find that soundbite of you declaring that the Cowboys cannot win the Super Bowl. And in February, when this team plays the way they did on Sunday and wins the Super Bowl, you're going to get reminded very, very harshly of the time you declared the fact that the Cowboys could not win a Super Bowl. And it made me scared. It made me go, oh, man, I might get proven wrong. And I can't admit when I'm wrong. But a very, very impressive win for the Cowboys on Sunday. Round of applause. It was very well done. And uh, I walked away going, huh? The Cowboys gained a little bit of respect from me. Now, for Minnesota, uh, this loss was a red flag in my opinion. The Vikings, you know, 40 to 3... You get dominated by Dallas. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you're playing. You, you can't lose 40-3 to three and be expected to be a Super Bowl contender. You gave up seven sacks. I know you lost your left tackle, Christian Derrissaw. Um, with the, you, know, you got a concussion. But this is also the second week in a row Christian Derrissaw has missed time due to a concussion. Now it's becoming a problem. Hey, is your left tackle going to be available? And also, a Super Bowl team doesn't lose games 40-3. to three. They just don't. Um, and I just, I find myself today looking at Minnesota kind of with a side eye. I don't want to overreact here, but I also have said before, like Minnesota plays a lot of close games more than I'm comfortable with. Um, I think the way they beat Buffalo wasn't clean. They found a way to win that game against Buffalo, this crazy game where Josh Allen fumbles on his own one yard line, but it wasn't. I said it even at the time, that win over Buffalo wasn't that impressive because both teams had so many opportunities to win. I tried to be optimistic in that moment. And I I know Vikings fans want to see their team get credit. But if you're a Vikings fan, are you not a little bit worried today that what we saw was terrible? I mean, Kirk Cousins is still your quarterback. And the reputation of Kirk Cousins is not exactly a guy who's going to dominate in a big moment. Um you know, that you the Vikings play in a bad division. They play a lot of close games. Kirk is their quarterback. I just want to say this loss was a very alarming loss for Minnesota. I don't want to... I'm having a hard time not overreacting, but I just... I thought for sure, win or lose, Minnesota was going to compete and be close and interesting. And the fact that they just got absolutely obliterated, um, it, it just raises a red flag for me where I go, ooh... That's that's a concern. And if you don't, if you're not concerned and you're a, a Vikings fan, you're lying. That could not have felt good to watch on Sunday. And I just I looked at myself in the mirror and was like, Zach, do you really think this team can win a Super Bowl? I know you said they can, but maybe I got a flip flop. It maybe Dallas is the contender and, and Minnesota's the pretender. I'm not sure. I I'm having a hard time here because I just I don't want to strongly overreact here. But to say that. I reconsidered my stance on the Cowboys. That's true. And then to say that I wasn't a little bit concerned watching Minnesota get obliterated, it did raise a red flag for me. I think that's reasonable to say, hey, maybe Dallas is better than you think, and maybe Minnesota is kind of a pretender. I'm not saying, I'm not declaring that, but I think it's totally reasonable to wonder both things after this game because the way Dallas dominated and the way Minnesota got dominated just kind of has to grab your attention here. All right. Um, during NFL Week 11, the Washington Commanders beat the Houston Texans 23-10. to 10. And Taylor Heineke, their quarterback, was solid once again. He was 15 for 27 passing at 191 yards. No touchdowns, no interceptions, but they won. And the team played well around him. And after the game... Washington's head coach, Ron Rivera, came out and said, Taylor Heineke is our starting quarterback. And that's pretty wild. There's another way to say that, by the way. It's not just that Taylor Heineke is our starting quarterback. The other way to say that is that Carson Wentz lost his starting quarterback job to Taylor Heineke. And to me, that really says a lot about Carson Wentz as a quarterback and as a leader because Taylor Heineke has not exactly been amazing. Taylor Heineke hasn't been bad either. 
But it's not like Taylor Heineke's taking the league by storm and, you know, leading the NFL in passing or throwing for 300 yards and three touchdowns every week. You know, he, he runs the offense fairly well, and he's a good leader. He does, like, a decent job. He's a decent quarterback. I think he's a... I respect Taylor Heineke a lot. I actually think they should keep playing Taylor Heineke. I, I support this decision, for the record. Um, Now, Taylor Heineke has kind of a, a bad habit. I, I've got a bad habit, too. I... My whole life, I did the shaka, right? I All through high school, I, I did this to people, and no one knew what I was doing. Uh, and then I moved to Hawaii, and I did... It's like the hang loose symbol. It's a shaka. I do this to people on the road and all over grocery stores. And for the first time in my life, people started doing it back to me. And now that I'm back on the mainland, I can't stop doing it. No one knows... What I, I give them a shaka. No one knows what I'm doing. They don't really get it. But I can't, I can't break the habit. Taylor Heineke has a similar habit that he just can't seem to break, where... About once or twice a game, he's going to make a really risky, really cringeworthy throw deep downfield where you're like, I don't know that's a good decision. And he's like, I don't really care what you think, Zach. I'm going to force it into triple coverage. And actually, more often than not, it's worked out either with a neutral outcome or even a positive outcome. I'll never forget the throw he made a couple weeks ago to... Curtis Samuel into triple coverage where Curtis Samuel caught it for like a four. It was exactly a 49 yard touchdown. It padded his stats, made him look a lot better. Um, and that probably shouldn't have even been a completion. But I think that suits Washington's offense, by the way. Washington has Jahan Dotson and Terry McLaurin, these two big physical receivers who are great at jump balls. And that's why I thought Carson Wentz was a really good fit in this offense. I thought, hey, Carson Wentz is going to take shots downfield, throw jump balls. And believe it or not, actually, you know, <laughs> Taylor Heineke is the guy succeeding that way in Washington. Uh, it's worth noting Washington is paying Carson Wentz $28 million this year. And I would say that's a pretty hefty reason for Washington to have reasons to want to play Carson Wentz. I mean, when you're paying a guy that much money, you're not paying him to sit on the bench. Now, they have an uh, an out in his contract after this year. So Washington can say, hey, it didn't work and, and just cut Carson Wentz and move on. Carson's happy. He's made over $100 million in his career. But Carson at this point is Joe Flacco. He's a guy who got a massive contract and hasn't delivered since then. And clearly, by the way, Ron Rivera believes that Taylor Heineke gives Washington their best opportunity to win games. And it's true, by the way, he does. You know, Washington started one and four this year. Since then, they've gone five and one, and they're four and one with Taylor Heineke as their quarterback. Uh, and the only loss Taylor Heineke has, by the way, was to a team that a lot of people think are, is really good, Minnesota. They lost by three. So it's not like Taylor Heineke is four and a bad loss. Like he's four and one, and it was a game they were highly competitive in and nearly won. So I just, I think that. Taylor Heineke clearly does bring the best out of his teammates. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you have to say this about Carson Wentz. Three teams in a row now have not wanted Carson. Three teams in three years. Philly, Indy, and now Washington. And the biggest problems for Carson Wentz... I had a funny segment the other day where I was really excited to watch Carson Wentz play against his former team, Indianapolis. And... Then I realized halfway through the segment, I'm like, oh my gosh, Carson Wentz is hurt. He's not even playing. And I'm like, what does Carson Wentz even do well? Right? He, he makes bad decisions. He gets hurt a lot. And he's got bad leadership. Like, he doesn't, he's good at getting hurt a lot is basically the point of that. It's, that's what Carson Wentz is good at. He's never available. He's not an impressive leader. He's not a great decision maker. There actually isn't anything I can think of that Carson Wentz is better at than Taylor Heineke, other than he's taller and has a stronger arm maybe and is on paper a better athlete. Um, although I would even argue Taylor Heineke extends plays better than Carson Wentz, which is insane, but true. But here's the biggest thing. Taylor Heineke, when you compare him to Carson Wentz, is so much better of a leader, not only because of, I guess, here's what I mean when I say that is what I'm trying to get at. When you say Taylor Heineke is a better leader than Carson Wentz, what I'm saying is that he gets the most out of his teammates. He's encouraging people. He's rallying the people around him. 
That's why people asked me on Patreon the other day, why does Taylor Heineke seem to get the most out of his players? It's because he's encouraging. He's fighting. And he plays in a way that people respect. And clearly, the locker room supports Taylor Heineke. And when you're a team like Washington, you're you know, six and five, you're trying to keep your season alive. You got Ron Rivera as a head coach, just trying to win. You got to go with not only the quarterback that gives you a best opportunity to win, but another massive factor here is you got to play the guy that the locker room supports. And if the locker room believes Taylor Heineke is going to help them win, they're going to play harder. And it's pretty clear watching the locker room does very much believe that Taylor Heineke is their guy. In fact, you might have even argued they thought that going into the year because Carson Wentz came in, it wasn't great. And I, I would not be shocked if the attitude in Washington's locker room when Carson Wentz was brought in was people saying, why do we need this guy? We got Taylor. Carson isn't this good. Why, why do we have, why did we even make a move for Carson Wentz? There might've been a bit of a disgruntled attitude about Carson Wentz just from the get go. Um, now I want to say this. I would go with Taylor Heineke for a while. I think until you find your next quarterback who is a special, th- I mean, let's be honest. If you're not, if your quarterback isn't similar to Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen or any one of these guys who's really physically gifted, who's got a big arm and can run around, you're doing it wrong. And if I was Washington, my approach would be Taylor Heineke's our guy until we find someone who's similar to Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes or Justin Herbert or Justin Fields or, you know, we're looking for a really dynamic athlete who's got a big arm who we can teach how to play quarterback. And I think the best thing you do if you're Washington, you draft a really super talented quarterback in the second or third round let the guy develop, and when he's ready, he can supplant Taylor Heineke as your quarterback. But Taylor Heineke is not amazing, but he's decent. And having a decent quarterback, actually, who, by the way, is cheap. You're not paying Taylor Heineke very much. You get rid of Carson Wentz this year. You, I think you keep Taylor Heineke. You pay him a modest amount of money to be your decent quarterback. And long-term, what that does is having a decent quarterback allows you the patience to wait until you find the right guy. I think it would be a monumental mistake if Washington drafted the quarterback out of Kentucky, Will Levis. I don't think physically he's got what it takes to become a top five quarterback in the NFL. He might be solid, but I think he's like Ryan Tannehill level. He's he's decent and does some good stuff, but Will Levis is never going to be a top five quarterback in the NFL. Bryce Young might be, but Bryce Young, the quarterback out of Alabama, is going to be too high of a draft pick for Washington to get. I, I think if there are guys later in the draft who are really physically gifted. Jaden Daniels out of LSU. Um, Bo Nix out of Oregon. Adrian Martinez out of K-State. Guys who, you look at them today and you're like, Zach, you're crazy. They would never be the best quarterback in the NFL. But what they can do is run, and they've got big arms and can move around. And I just would want a quarterback who can run around and has got a lot of physical gifts that Taylor Heineke doesn't. So if you're going to replace Taylor Heineke, I, I would do it with a second or third round pick and a guy who is really physically gifted that eventually can develop into your franchise quarterback. That would be my approach at quarterback for Washington. And um, I just, I really like Taylor Heineke, man. He's not amazing. But I, I think Washington should just embrace that having a budget quarterback who's good enough gives you the freedom to pay other people and really build a great roster. And then when the day comes that you're able to draft your franchise quarterback, the guy you really believe in, he's going to be set because you're going to have a great team prepared for the day you get that rookie quarterback. And your rookie quarterback, maybe it's in second round, a second year, I mean, when you finally get him on the field. But if you get a quarterback on a rookie contract, they're going to be so much cheaper. And that's the formula to win a Super Bowl. I know Washington is so far away from any of these problems, but I, I really hope Washington doesn't rush out to go get a rookie quarterback next year because I know you want to sell jerseys and have excitement in the fan base, but I just think Taylor Heineke's good enough. He's budget. He can win clearly. And his cheap contract allows you the financial freedom to build a really, really incredible team around him. And great teams win Super Bowls, not just great quarterbacks. Aaron Rodgers is an incredible quarterback on a mediocre team and they're losing and they're not having a good year. They're four and seven. The Packers are not a threat to win the Super Bowl. I think 
frankly, Washington, if they just keep paying your quarterback a small amount and really invest in the players around Taylor Heineke, that's going to have a better shot to win a Super Bowl than a team built like Green Bay, which is very top-heavy where you're paying a quarterback $45 million a year and can't afford to get him receivers and get him the weapons he needs to win. So that's my two cents, man. I really, uh, I don't know. Taylor Heineke's the guy in Washington, and I have no problem with that at all. All right. Um, on Sunday night football, Kansas City beat the Chargers 30-27. to Casey is now 8-2. and They're the number one seed in the AFC. And I just want to be clear about something. Kansas City is so much fun to watch. Uh, Patrick Mahomes in this game had three touchdown passes. All of them went to Travis Kelsey. Travis Kelsey had six catches for 115 yards and three touchdown catches. And it just, with retrospective, it's really something that Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill once played on the same team. Like, they're so capable. And I remember saying at the end of last year, like, just enjoy any moment you get to watch these two guys play together. And it, it came to an end very quickly after that. And so I just... It's just really impressive, and and Travis Kelsey's a guy that him and Mahomes like they just have a special connection. He's making plays, he's making yard, getting yards after the catch, and doing all kinds of stuff. And I just hope people properly appreciate the time they get to spend watching Travis Kelsey because he really is one of a kind and a very very special receiving tight end. Now, uh, Patrick Mahomes had a game-winning touchdown drive in this one. Uh, Mahomes got the ball with a minute 46 left on his own 25-yard line. He drove 75 yards downfield for a game-winning touchdown. It's pretty cool. It's another uh, statement about how great Patrick Mahomes is. But what I really want to focus your attention on is the L.A. Chargers because the Chargers had multiple fourth-quarter turnovers and they lose another game. And the Chargers find themselves now 5-5. Five and five. And I would say they are monumentally underachieving as a football team. And I I really like Brandon Staley. Brandon Staley is the Chargers head coach. Seems like a very nice man. I like his approach. I like the way he interacts with players. But unfortunately, I think it's time for a new head coach in L.A. Um, I know there have been a lot of injuries on this football team. They have not been his fault. But the roster is just too good to be 5-5. Five and five. You got Justin Herbert, Austin Eckler, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Khalil Mack, Joey Bosa, Derwin James, J.C. Jackson, who's hurt but still on the roster. You got a really good offensive line. I mean, this team in L.A. is absolutely loaded with talent. And they're 5-5. Five and five. Yeah, That cannot be. You, you just... You can't have talent everywhere and <laughs> be a 500 team 11 weeks into the year. Exactly 5-5. Five and five. That's, that's awful. And it's widely known that the Chargers just refuse to pay for a premium head coach. But can you imagine what Sean Payton could do? You know, former coach of the Saints who won a Super Bowl with New Orleans and had Drew Brees for years. Can you imagine what Sean Payton could do with this roster. And it's not going to happen, but if LA's ownership ever decided to just pay the guy, and I think he might even have to trade for him from New Orleans, but this team would win with Sean Payton as their head coach. And I'm, I'm actually at this point begging the ownership in LA. You've got this incredible quarterback, Justin Herbert. I think you wasted the career of Phillip Rivers. Phillip Rivers was Another really impressive quarterback who I loved. I, I'm a huge fan of Philip Rivers. I always will be. He never gets the respect that he has deserved. And Philip Rivers' career was basically wasted with teams that never won a Super Bowl. And I I really don't want to see another quarterback come and go for the Chargers that has a Hall of Fame or borderline Hall of Fame career. And doesn't get a Super Bowl out of it. Doesn't get a really deep playoff run. Justin Herbert has never played in a playoff game. Ever. That's absurd. It's it's really, really frustrating to watch. And I'm just... I really want to see the ownership in LA 
make a move because the team is just too talented to not make a deep playoff run. Five and five with the talent that the Chargers have on their roster is just insane. And LA is badly, badly underachieving. And it has to be said, I, I've got nothing personal against Brandon Staley. In fact, I would love to talk to the guy. Seems like a wonderful human being. But you can't be the coach of this football team and be 5-5. Five and five. And it makes me think of Mike McDaniel, who went to Miami, and in year one, he's 7-3. and three. In year one, Mike McDaniel's already winning and probably going to make the playoffs. So it puts coaches like Brandon Staley, who are struggling to win, with a really talented roster to shame. All right. um, Let's talk about college football. We just had college football week 12, and it was kind of a crazy weekend. First of all, number three ranked Michigan barely survived. They just beat Illinois by the smallest of margins. It required a kick at the last second with nine seconds left. That's how Michigan kicked their field goal to win. So Michigan stayed undefeated. You know, they won 19-17, but man, it, it's it's really hard for me to believe that next week when Michigan plays Ohio State, I, I just can't put myself in a frame of mind to believe that Michigan really has a legitimate shot to beat Ohio State next weekend. Another team that barely won, uh, number four ranked TCU, barely, just barely beat Baylor. Uh, they needed a last second field goal. I don't believe TCU... It's going to be very competitive if and when they make it into the college football playoff. But I do also want to give them credit. Like, I don't want to hate on TCU. I have watched almost every TCU game this year because they've all been fun and exciting and meaningful. And I have had an absolute blast watching this team and getting to know this team. And, you know, TCU was down in this game 28 to 20. They got a touchdown with two minutes left, but then they failed their two-point conversion and it was just a roller coaster because watching, I, I was rooting for TCU. I, they're the little engine that could. I don't want to see them win and make the playoff. They're going to lose, but it's still a fun story. And when TCU failed the two-point conversion to tie the game, I went, oh, man, this game is over. That sucks. And then they stopped Baylor. They forced a punt. And then, shout out to TCU kicker. Griffin Kell, it was fourth down with 17 seconds left in the game, and the clock was running. So the kicking unit had to sprint onto the field, line up and kick a field goal with the clock just ticking down, and they did. Griffin Kell made it. He kicked a 40-yard game-winning field goal. Uh, It's a really impressive kick and a big moment, and if you haven't seen the video, go watch it, because they literally, they run onto the field, get lined up, calm, composed. Griffin Kell kicks the game-winning field goal, and you're like, dude, that is a big-time kick in a really big moment. And I walked away impressed and very, very happy. Uh, There was a great game in college football. Whatever the Patriots-Jets game was in the NFL that finished 10-3, this game was the opposite. It was just a... This USC-UCLA game was a fun, incredible offensive battle. USC beat UCLA 48-45. to Um... You know, UCLA's quarterback, Doreen Thompson-Robinson, had six touchdowns. Unfortunately, he also had four turnovers. And it's really hard to win when your quarterback has that many turnovers. But, um, you know, a lot of people are throwing Caleb Williams' name out there after this game. Uh, USC's quarterback. They're throwing his name out as a guy who should get votes for the Heisman. Uh, He had over 500 yards against UCLA. Caleb Williams had three touchdowns. He threw two of them. He ran for one. He ran for 33 yards. He threw for 470. That's over 500 yards of total offense. And uh, if you want, I I would imagine the highlights of this game. I I actually watched this game. I would imagine the highlights of this game, USC, UCLA, are just already incredible. If you want, like, I imagine they're like a 20-minute video on YouTube. But watch what, I mean, everything went down. But if you want something and you didn't watch this game, you want entertainment. And you're like on your lunch break. Look up the USC-UCLA game because it was scoring, it was fun, it was back and forth, it was exciting, really dramatic. What a great game on Saturday between USC and UCLA. Now, uh, probably the shock of the weekend in college football was that South Carolina really badly beat Tennessee 63-38. to And uh, South Carolina quarterback Spencer Rattler was 30 for 37 passing. He had 438 yards and six touchdown passes. 
Uh, Spencer Rattler, by the way, has one more year of eligibility after this year. So even though he's had a, like a really up and down year, the potential is there. He's got an incredible arm. He's clearly got NFL ability. And I really am hoping that this game against Tennessee is something that Spencer Rattler can build off of for the future and maybe become the quarterback I know he's capable of, which is a, I think, a high-level NFL quarterback. Also, by the way, I just want to say I love Shane Beamer, the South Carolina head coach. I'm happy to see the guy win. His game plan was impressive, and uh, his interview after the game was just fun. I just, he was happy. Like I really, I, I really root for him, and I don't know that he's ever going to win the SEC or even be that impressive as a coach, but he's doing the best he can in a really, really tough conference, the SEC, and it's just very, very cool to see Shane Beamer have any level of success in that division. Um or conference, I guess is the word. South Carolina, by the way, they led all game. Um, Spencer Rattler made some beautiful throws. I think you also got to give you know a shout-out to, and, and really credit to, the South Carolina receiving core. They made a lot of really big catches downfield and were winning one-on-one matchups. So it wasn't just Spencer Rattler. It was this receiving core in South Carolina doing a great job. And they've you know produced a lot of NFL-level receivers over the years, and... Looks like they're going to do it again with this this class. Um, now, Tennessee briefly made it a four-point game. Tennessee made it 31-35 to 35 in the third quarter. Uh, I mean, they were only down four, but then later in the fourth quarter. So that's the third quarter. It's a four-point game. In the fourth quarter, Tennessee's quarterback, Hendon Hooker, actually, had a really ugly non-contact knee injury. And we found out Sunday morning he did tear his ACL. So his season is over. And um, it's very sad for Hendon Hooker because he was a top Heisman candidate. He, you know, Tennessee is now nine and two. They've got no quarterback. And I just really am sad for Hendon Hooker because he had such an impressive, great year. And I think, I don't know how the NFL views him. He's definitely not going to win the Heisman now because he's not going to play the rest of the year. And it's just very, very sad to see a guy's really impressive, really good year get cut short by an injury the way it did for Hendon Hooker. Um, how about a, I'm sorry, but it, it was a boring game. It was, I'll be quick about it. Oregon beat Utah 20 to 17. I watched this game for some reason and I regret it, but you have to suffer with it now too. Cause I, I took notes. I watched the whole game. I was really waiting to get something good out of it. And it never really happened. Utah's quarterback Cam Rising had three interceptions. Two of them were tipped, but they weren't great. Uh, Oregon quarterback, Bo Nix. Here's what's most disappointing. Bo Nix couldn't run around. He was, you know, Dealing with an ankle injury, and it was just really unfortunate. Uh, Utah made some weird decisions in this game. There was a fourth and three in the 11-yard line, and instead of kicking the field goal, Utah went for it and didn't get it. Later, there was a fourth and two with six minutes left in the game. Like, it's crunch time, and Utah was down three points in field goal range, and instead of kicking the field goal... They went for it and did not kick the field goal. They got stopped again. Cam Rising, the quarterback, threw a really bad throw to Dalton Kincaid that wasn't caught. It was weird by Utah. And I, I'm, you know, UCLA-USC was so incredible. I thought Oregon-Utah was going to be a similar level game, and it, it just wasn't. It was just not a great high-level game. It was not a bad game, certainly, and it was dramatic and interesting. But I wanted maybe more of a show, and we did not get that from utah from Utah and Oregon. I hope I've been saying Utah and Oregon the entire time. Now I'm all worried. Did I say UCLA ever? But Utah, Oregon, not the great game I was hoping for. Finally, the last college football game I want to talk about, uh, Georgia beat Kentucky 16-6. to And uh, I thought, I mean, I did not expect Kentucky to win this game at all, but Kentucky actually challenged Georgia more than most teams have. And watching this game, it actually made me think of LSU. LSU is more than likely going to play Georgia in a couple weeks in the SEC title game. And I want to start asking the question now, what if LSU can find a way to beat Georgia in that SEC title game? It would not only screw up all the playoff rankings, because then you would, you think you have no true number one and number four team now, like, What's going to happen if Georgia loses? Like, what? That'd be wild. But also, you would have to acknowledge that would be an incredible first year for Brian Kelly, the new head coach at LSU, to beat Bama 
and Georgia and win the SEC title all in your first year at LSU. I mean, it could happen. It's unlikely, but it's also not impossible that that happens. And I want people to be prepared for that reality because Brian Kelly, in my opinion, is a fabulous head coach. And that's not a new thing for me. I've said that for a while. And um, it's it's really cool to see the guy do so well and uh, hopefully continue to succeed in college football in the SEC. All right, uh, I am going to end the show with one final topic. You can skip it if you want. We're going to talk about Formula One. Let's jump in. Um, actually, actually, I, I, I feel like I have to acknowledge this. There's two things I want to talk about here first. Um, the World Cup is happening right now, and I don't want to be... I'm not a political show at all. And I my philosophy here is that if you're watching a sports podcast or listening to a sports podcast... You want entertainment and you want a break from the really tough reality. Look, life is absolutely hard. I get it. I don't want to focus on the negative side of the world. Um, So that's why I'm not going to tell you a whole long story and pitch you this. But I I want to encourage you to, if you are interested, uh, I would look up Qatar, uh, which is where the World Cup is being held. It's a Middle Eastern country. And just do some research about the worker conditions for how they built the stadiums in this country. Um, you you can't... I'm not trying to make a grand statement here. Like, I'm about to talk about Formula One, which it's the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. The Formula One happens in Saudi Arabia. It happens in... I, I watched a race in Qatar before. I mean, I, I'm not trying to um, be a hypocrite here. But I, I watched a really great article, you know, piece with uh, it's by Johnny Harris, a, a journalist who I um, think does a good job. I watched uh, John Oliver last week tonight talking about Qatar and their stadiums, and I, I just encourage you if you are interested in some of the pol- political stuff in the sports world behind the scenes with um, the World Cup and Qatar, look up John Oliver and last week tonight and what he covered there, and look up Johnny Harris and a really um, controversial, but I think very, you know, high level journalists in um, the world of uh, YouTube world, I guess, who made a video about Qatar. And if if you are curious and want to watch the World Cup, I I got, dude, I've done a lot of, I mean, I I watch Formula One, which is all about, you know, fossil fuels and it happens in the Middle East. Like, I, I'm not trying to tell anyone what to do or what to do with their time. I just think if you're curious, you should do some research and watch those those videos or something like that and do some research on how the stadiums were built in Qatar for the World Cup because it's a little bit um, eye-opening is a great word. So there you go. Now, oh, by the way, before we move on, tonight on Monday Night Football, uh, two teams play. I want to make sure I, I don't want to say the wrong ones. I don't know in my notes which ones they are, but I... Um, tonight, oh, let's look. All of my stuff is a World Cup. You can't escape it. Tonight, the 49ers play the Arizona Cardinals. And I just want to encourage you, enjoy it, man. I Christian McCaffrey is going to play. Debo Samuel's going to play. Um, I think the 49ers are going to win this game. I'm rooting for the 49ers openly because every time the 49ers, sorry, every time, every time Arizona loses, it makes it more likely they're going to fire their problematic head coach. Problematic being he's not a good coach. And he's hurting the franchise. Not It's nothing political there at all. Uh, Cliff Kingsbury is a coach in Arizona. And when he loses, it makes him more likely to get fired. And I don't think he's a guy for the job. I think he's holding back this franchise. And so um, I am openly rooting for the 49ers tonight. I think it's going to be fun. I hope it's going to be exciting. Uh, Monday Night Football is going to be interesting. Now, let's end with Formula 1. On Sunday, we have the last F1 race of the year the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Uh, And there were two big storylines here. Number one was the battle for second in the driver's standings. That's Sergio Perez against Charles Leclerc. And the other big storyline was Sebastian Vettel's final F1 race. Uh, The battle between Charles Leclerc and Sergio Perez was really fun, in my opinion. They had different tire strategies. Charles Leclerc did a one-stop strategy, meaning he only had one pit stop. Sergio Perez had two pit stops during this race, and it created a situation where at the end of the race, Sergio Perez was hunting down Charles Leclerc. And the question was, can Sergio Perez catch Charles Leclerc 
before the race ends. And we are watching the, the gap slowly go down and down and down as Checo gained more and more ground on Charles Leclerc. It was tense. It was fun. There was no room for error and no margin for error for Charles Leclerc. He couldn't afford a lockup or any kind of mistake because any lost time would be the difference and he would lose. And it clearly meant a lot to them to try to finish second behind Max Verstappen in the driver's standings. Now, Max Verstappen won this race easily in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and at the end, I, you know, Sergio Perez was unable to catch up to Charles Leclerc. He made it interesting. It was very close. And if we went like three more laps, definitely, Sergio, maybe even one or two more laps, Sergio Perez would have caught up and passed Charles Leclerc. But as it was, Charles Leclerc got second, Sergio Perez got third. And that meant that in the driver standings, the final driver standings of the year, Max Verstappen obviously won the world title. Second was Charles Leclerc with 308 points. Third was Sergio Perez with 305 points. And by the way, the points that he would have gotten from help from Max Verstappen in Brazil ended up not mattering. Max would have been handing, uh, by by giving Perez, it, that it would have been like one point and it wouldn't have mattered anyway. So um, it's interesting to me. In the final driver standings, fourth is George Russell with 275 points. Fifth is Carlos Sainz with 246 points. Sixth is Lewis Hamilton with 240 points. And again, the big one here was that Charles Leclerc beat Sergio Perez by three points and a bigger margin, by the way, than would have mattered uh, given the Brazilian Grand Prix. Now, I might as well um, go through the final team standings. And by the way, I mentioned the Brazilian Grand Prix because there was a moment that I went off about the other day where Max Verstappen could have helped Sergio Perez get a better finish in the race and the amount he would have got didn't end up mattering anyway. Now, in the final team standings, number one, Red Bull won the World Championship this year. They have 759 points. Second was Ferrari with 554 points. Third was Mercedes with 515 points. And then the battle that really came down maybe to the end, not not that exciting. You know, Fernando Alonso had to retire um, with, a, you know, half just before halfway through the race. By the way, Lewis Hamilton had to retire um, with three laps to go in Abu Dhabi. And it was the first and only time all year a Mercedes car had mechanical failure, which is actually very impressive to me to go all but three laps all year and not a mechanical failure. Well done, Mercedes. Uh, so Alpine got fourth in the driver's standings with 173 points. Fifth was McLaren with 159 points. Sixth was Alfa Romeo with 55 points. Aston Martin also got 55 points, but they are seventh because... Alpha got a higher finish of the year. Valtteri Bottas got fifth at Imola. Uh, in eighth, you got Haas with 37 points. In ninth was Alpha Tower with 35 points. And Williams got 10th in Formula 1, dead last with eight points scored, which feels surprisingly high. I didn't realize Williams ended up with eight points this year. I felt like they only got three, but maybe that's just me being crazy. Uh, now, the other storyline in this race, though, was that it was Sebastian Vettel's final F1 race. He's a four-time world champion. He drove from 2007 until 2022. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I never really saw the best years of Seb, and that makes me very sad because I started watching Formula One near the end of Sebastian Vettel's run with Ferrari. And I feel like I really missed out because I always loved the guy. I mean, I, he's very easy to love. He's got a cool personality. Seems like a very normal guy. Um, I love watching him on, you know, he was on Top Gear once with Jeremy Clarkson. That was really, really cool. Um, and in his final ever F1 race, it's kind of interesting. He actually finished in the points. He got P10. So he got a point, which was kind of, I like seeing that. Um, I, I wish I could have seen Seb though, during his prime years in a great car. I even would love to see what Seb would look like now in a great car. I, I think he would be competitive. And I'm sad that I never really got to see that. I never got to see the dominant Sebastian Vettel at Red Bull or anything. And uh, I, you can go back and watch old races, but it's just not the same as in the moment when you really just aren't sure who's going to win and what's going to happen. And, um, you know, I, I think a, a prime example of that is Charles Leclerc very well could become a world champion in the future. He's got the talent. Uh, if Ferrari builds him a good enough car... He's going to challenge Max Verstappen, I hope, for a world title. But um, 
that's a story we don't have the answer to already yet. Whereas if I go back and watch an old season with Sebastian Vettel and Red Bull, I already know what's going to happen and it's going to be a lot less interesting. So just it's a moment in time I'll never be able to be a part of. And that makes me very, very sad. But uh, Seb, I salute you. What a great career you had. And uh, a fan favorite for a reason. Sebastian Vettel appeared like a guy who um, would have been really, really cool to get a drink with. And uh, he's going to be forever missed on the F1 grid. And, and by the way, I'd love to see him do commentary of some kind. I think he'd be great as a broadcaster. And uh, if he wants to do that, he'll be great. If not, he'll be awesome sitting on a beach and relaxing into retirement. Um, guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much for tuning in. It's Monday. Got a show recorded and put out on Monday. I love you so much. I appreciate you. Have a great day. And uh, bam, we are done.